0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is David Schaefer, the author of Antonin Artaud, and the book was published by Reaction Books and the University of Chicago Press in 2016. Hi there, David.
1: Hi, Roxanne. Thank you for, for having me.
0: Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France and French history?
1: Okay, well, <clears throat> presently I'm the I'm the chair of the history department at California State University, Long Beach. Um uh, I'm also a professor of modern and contemporary European history. So how did I get into French history? Well, let's see. First of all, I was not a history major in college. I was a political science major and a sociology minor, and I went to law school after that. Mm-hmm. And when I was about I think I was just about to complete my second year of law school and was trying to scout around for something else because I knew I did not want to be a lawyer though I would complete law school. Um what I did was um start thinking about my interests. My my principal interests were film and um a class I had actually in in French political theory as part of my political science major that I found to be really interesting. So w- what I did was um as I was scouting around for my next move after law school, I just decided to settle on on French history and I applied to do my doctorate um, at University College of london under douglas johnson and mm. I got accepted um what what got me into French history is probably not the most um, typical path i't I guess I was drawn to it because of the macabre aspects of french history and mm. I, and I was always really embarrassed by that <laughs> and At one of my first seminars as a grad student um you know i always you know i I always tried to find um oh, I, I, I suppose uh, a more uh, a higher level of why I got into French history rather than, you know, talking about, you know, heads on pikes and heads falling into <laughs> baskets. But but in any event, though, um, Douglas Johnson at this first seminar was introducing, I guess, whoever was giving the uh, the talk that night and said, this person got into French history the way many of us do through the macabre aspects. And I, I knew I was with kindred spirit at that
0: point. <laughs> That's terrific. And what brought you to the work and life of Arthur in particular?
1: yeah so um my my first book was on the the paris commune um of eighteen seventy one and uh my doctoral dissertation was on the revolutionary um tradition in france from uh uh let uh, Le up till the uh the defeat of the commune and I've always wondered like you know why does the revolutionary tradition that i identified in my doctoral thesis come to an end and um I've always been fascinated with Artaud, and I can get into that in a little bit uh, as well. But, but one thing that I found was a continuation with my prior work hmm. um, in reading Artaud, where I saw Artaud as a revolutionary. And I felt that the obliteration of the commune ended a particular type of revolutionary tradition in France um, that had existed since the French Revolution of the 18th century,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but that couldn't continue, could not be sustained. In other words, the idea that power was for the taking in the street, political power, for example. And what Artaud represents to me is is the conquest of the cultural space rather than the political. And I see him as a revolutionary in that way.
0: So, David, obviously we're going to be spending the next hour or so talking about Artaud, but could you just mm-hmm. give us a sort of brief mini biography of him before we get into it, just so we can kind of situate yeah. him as a figure?
1: Sure. So, Antonin Artaud, um, you know, he's from Marseille. Um, he was, I guess, I don't know, a thumbnail sketch of him. He was a poet. He was a writer theater theoretician, actor, matinee idol, in fact. Um, <laughs> you know, he was considered to be one of the most in the 1920s in one French uh, film magazine. I think they ranked him like one of the eight top heartthrobs in France. Um, <laughs> hey, I mean, he was a good-looking guy. Um, and then what he's increasingly identified with is his drug usage, and that's what draws a lot of people to Alto. I was once at a, at a used bookstore in, in Rouen, where, where I used to teach, and uh, I asked the guy if he had any – when I first started the project, if he had – and he works on alto, and he says, "No, they're really hard to, to maintain. They're hard to keep here because uh, he said young people keep coming in here to buy it." And I thought, "Wow, there's that much interest in alto." And he said, "Yeah, yeah, there is because of the drugs. They want to read about his experiences with mm-hmm. drugs." Right. So okay, so there's that, and then of course he's identified with the um, 56 electric shock treatments that he got mm-hmm. um, at the the uh, the asylum in Rodez uh, in the south of France, you know. And so uh, that's basically. I mean, he, he's a guy who is known for not really known for any great plays that he wrote. Um, He's known for having been in some of the greatest movies of the French silent era Mm -hmm. as an actor, but he's really known a lot for his ideas, Mm -hmm. Um, Theater of Cruelty, for example.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to want to bring us back to that um, in in a Mm -hmm. little bit. But before we get into the the biography in in any detail, I guess I want to ask you, David, about what you see as your principal interventions with respect to the world of Artaud scholarship, uh, other biographies. Uh, why write this biography? Why did you feel like you needed to write a biography of, of Artaud?
1: Yeah, well, <clears throat> initially I was not going to write a biography of Artaud. I was going to contextualize Artaud a bit more than I feel I really did in this book. And what happened was I had sent uh, a précis of uh, you know, chapter by chapter précis to, uh, to a few publishers, including the publisher of my book, On the Commune, and basically what I got, <clears throat> what I got from publishers that deal with, a, you know, in a variety of disciplines is, well, we sent it to the theater people and they thought it was too historical. <laughs> and the history people thought it was too much cultural studies and too much, uh, too much theater. Hmm. So we, we don't really know how we'd pitch this thing. So, you know, thanks, but, you know, we're going to pass on it. So, you know, I, I still felt that I wanted to, to work on Alto, um, because no historians have ever worked on him. Number one, and I, I find him to be a fascinating individual. In some respects, I felt um, I felt a certain identity with him
0: hmm.
1: personally. And I know the you know we typically tell our students don't get too close to your subject. And, and I always told that to my students. For example, don't don't choose a topic to work on that you feel too close because the, the distance between you and your topic won't be great enough for you to have um, an objective enough perspective. But you know i I guess I disabused myself of the idea that any of us are ever objective about anything we work on number one, and so consequently i, I didn't really worry so much about that, and you know I felt mm-hmm. that whatever closeness I felt to auto whatever um however much I shared his sensibility in some respects and, and not all trust me so i, I, yeah, I somebody out by that <laughs> yeah i I thought that, I thought that my god you should, your 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 next call is going to be basically you know a nine one one call but anyway. <laughs> You know, I, I, so, so, but again, as a historian, I wanted to put him into a certain, I wanted to put him into his times for sure. Um mm-hmm. I wanted to show that whatever sort of aversion historians have had, and, and this is absolutely true, that very few historians, even those who write cultural histories of 20th century France, never reference Artaud, mm-hmm. or just do it very obliquely, but, yeah. but never, never really interact with him. And, and I felt that that's a shame that this is a guy who's Whose own connections were with some of the leading figures of his time and some of the you know most important movements. And, and we can really um, tease out a lot about the history of that period um, through his life.
0: So what about the experience of doing biography as a researcher mm-hmm. and a writer, David? You say at one point in the introduction to the book that, and I'm quoting you here, to study Ahto means respecting the impenetrability of his seemingly Kevlar shrouded head. So What was it like for you to do a biography, and what were some of the specific challenges of doing this biography?
1: Yeah, Otto is a very obtuse individual, and I think he purposely made himself like that. I I don't think that he wanted people to really understand him perfectly clearly, and yet I think that that's what a number of biographies have endeavored to do in the past, primarily ones, the the many that have been written about him in France um, in particular, have uh, really tried to speak for Otto, and I don't think that that's that's possible. Not, it's not that it's not the right thing to do. It's just not possible really to do so. His writings are pretty much all over the map in many ways. There's not a, a consistency um, in them. And, and to try to find a consistency in them is to play a fool's game. I, I think in that introduction, if I'm not mistaken, again, it's been a while since I've reread the book, but uh, I quoted uh, Jean Baudrillard who basically mm-hmm. said that um, everybody has to have their own personal experience with Artaud, um rather than to... Um, expect that it's kind of a one-size-fits-all, and this can be the definitive biography of Otto. There have been people who've tried to do that, mm-hmm. um, recently, in fact, um, and there have been others who have respected it. But I, I think that that's what my approach was, is, is to respect him and not to try to speak for him, um, to try to present his writings, um, to try to find some sort of logic in them, and that can be a really trying thing to do,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and at the same time to situate them in the period in which he lived.
0: Well, let's start where you do then with his sort of family background and family relationships and these bourgeois origins. What does the book offer us in terms of where Arthur comes from and his uh, family dynamics that help us to understand his subsequent life?
1: Bourgeois family from Marseille, family that, uh, you know, was fairly prosperous at one time and then fell upon hard times um, during his youth. So there was that very stifling um, home environment as uh, you know bourgeois families in, in France were prone to be at that time mm-hmm. particularly because they're always prone to be but particularly at that time he didn't have a an especially close relationship with his father and so that in many respects determined his um, his approach to authority mm-hmm. um, as you know overall um, He had a kind of a weird family background where his grandmothers were sisters who were separated yeah. at birth. And, um, you know, one thing that you may or may not ask me about is, um, where I got some of my material from, at least the images that I use in the book. Um, I developed a a pretty close relationship with Artaud's last surviving relative. Um, this is his 80, I think he's 86 now, his 86 year old nephew, Serge Molosena and uh, Serge's wife, Simone. And I've gotten to know them quite well. Anybody who really works on Artaud and wants to get access at the BNF to the, uh, Fond Artaud, Mm -hmm. uh, has to go through Serge. Now, in my case, Serge invited me to come down to Marseille, uh, to Nice, excuse me, where they lived most of the year at that time, um, to see him. And, you know, I, I, my daughter was is, lives in Paris, and so she and I flew down to Nice, and uh, we thought it was only going to be a few hours, and, you know, 12 hours later, you know, we were basically um. begging them to call a taxi for us. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, that that was just the start of what became a, a pretty good relationship right there. But, um, but one thing that Serge's wife, Simone, told me is this, is that why the family comes to an end, and that is that... I guess based on the grandmothers and whatnot, there's a feeling in the family that um, insanity might be congenital. And so people in the family decided not to to perpetuate the line. And when Serge passes, uh, that'll be the end of the Alto family right there. So um, the thing is, is that, you know, his background, uh, his background might have had a might have had a pretty, pretty big effect on on who he became. Um, you know, in France, uh, yeah, I mean, in 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 literature and theater, and uh, basically in terms of uh, you know the gestation of his ideas.
0: And his childhood was really clouded by sickness and death. I mean, it seems to feature really centrally as well.
1: Yeah, he had a case of meningitis, or at least we think he had a case of meningitis. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what he said. I mean, diagnoses of meningitis um, were not quite as precise in that day. He was very sick. We know that much. He had a younger sister who died um, at a very early age, and um, <clears throat> this had a pretty profound effect on the family. Um, and so then, and there was a pretty big gap between he and his younger brother, Fennel, um as well. Um, so th- there were these instances in his childhood, for sure. Um, other things, though, that were less dramatic and less uh, painful than that, though, were his trips to Smyrna, which is now Izmir in Turkey, mm-hmm. um, to visit his uh, you know, one of his grandparents um, his, his grandmother who uh, who stayed in Smyrna the other one was transported to Marseille with an uncle and never came back, but that was the separation of birth business but um, his trips to there gave him an appreciation I think for other cultures and really mm-hmm. situated him in terms of his frames of reference in the you know the Mediterranean writ large you know, coming from Marseille and then traveling a couple of times in his life to Smyrna where um, you know which was a formative experience in his life.
0: I wanted to, I want to follow up on that a little bit, David, just because I guess what little I knew about Alto before reading, reading the book, I I guess I didn't really have a sense of where he came from and what his Mm -hmm. sort of cultural origins uh, were. And really throughout the book, I mean, we don't have time to talk about every single place he resided and all those (laughs) moves, but you know, you, you do make the point early on that the space of the Mediterranean is really important um, then of course there's Paris. So his moves within France are important. But then he travels to numerous other places, including you know Ireland and Mexico. And then there's of course the places and spaces that he imagines and draws on for inspiration mm. in his work, uh, particularly you know the East. So mm. I wondered if you could just comment on the role of place and space in his life and in the book.
1: Yeah, sure. Um Marseille at that time was, you know, one of the few very multicultural cities in Paris during his youth. You know, even at that time it was being, you know, just across from Morocco and Algeria, so it had a you know, it had a pretty rich cultural life which Otto was familiar with. And then of course there were his travels to, to Smyrna um as well that uh, and, and Smyrna itself was a multicultural city before, you know, it all kind of, you know, went to hell in 1922 with um uh, you know, the war between Greeks and uh and the Turks uh there. <laughs> so in terms of place Otto basically and this is this is where I see him as part of and this is going to be an answer to your previous question that I didn't really get to which was his resentment of his bourgeois background mm-hmm. um his resentment of western cultural references. Now, I don't know if his travels actually created that resentment um over uh, towards the west or whether he resented the privileging of Western cultural values and reference points. And that's why he reacted so strongly. And as you said, yeah, in his mind, he'd never been to to Bali, for example. Um, He had never been to Cambodia Mm -hmm. where he'd seen, you know, Cambodian uh, dancers at, um, in Marseille at the colonial exposition. Um, And then 1931, he, experiences Balinese theater. And so, you know, he he never really, um, he never went to those places, but in his head, I think he felt that he had, and he got some of that stuff wrong, but he was so um, committed to, to challenging and transforming um, Western values that it was as if in his mind, I suppose, that he had been there or he had come from another place and another Mm -hmm. space. And as you probably read in, in, in his writings, I mean, you know, kind of weird things about what his origins were and where he came from and, where he had been in past lives and, you know, mm-hmm. all of these things. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that he actually believed those things. Okay. Um, but, you know, again, it was the distance himself from from his own space, the space that he occupied.
0: I love that moment in the, it's it's really early on. I think it's in the, it's either in the chapter, the first chapter or in the introduction where you talk about his sort of refusal of his, of his birth date mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and that, when, you know, when you said earlier that you try to kind of go with him while writing this biography, um, that that for me really stands out a as a moment where you're kind of honoring his his way um, to say that there's a biography. And of course, we have these dates that we would delimit his life using these dates, but that he had this kind of more imaginative or creative or performative sense of his life as extending beyond those that human temporality or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Performative is the operative word there. Um, you know, his performance was it, you know, and, and I, I struggled with whether Artaud was really performing life or whether, you know, where he saw life as a stage and an extension of the stage that he acted on, mm-hmm. or whether this was just the way he navigated and whether he felt everybody else was a performer and he was the genuine article. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think it was the latter actually, that he, that he was striving for an authenticity, um, hmm. That he felt was missing from the world, and especially from the west, and again, you know he was such an idealized orientalist because, yeah. because that 's what he was i mean he was he was an orientalist and but but one who idealized it you know in a way that others saw it as exotic Arto didn 't really see it as exotic; he just saw it as as real so i I guess what i 'm saying is that yeah i I tried to respect his views, his perspective, his writings, his approach as much as i could i didn 't want to ridicule it mm-hmm. as a lot of people have done in the past.
0: So just to kind of follow up on this idea of uh, the the West and the non-West, mm-hmm. I, as, I was, as I was reading the book, I was thinking about the, the biography in relationship to, I don't know, the last couple of decades of work in, in French history and French studies on, on empire. And mm-hmm. do you feel like the biography was sort of influenced by that historiography? Well,
1: If I did it, I didn't necessarily do it consciously, although I am familiar with the works that have come out. So perhaps it was, you know, somewhere in the recesses of my consciousness Mm -hmm. that I was thinking about these things, that, you know, the more recent, as you say, the more recent historiography on the end of French Empire, French colonialism, um, the uh, critique of it, perhaps that did influence um, my reading of Artaud in a way that I saw him as someone who was, really rubbing against the grain in that respect during Mm -hmm. his, you know, the time that he lived, you know, as he dies before the end of French colonialism and when there wasn't really within France, a a particularly strong um, movement against colonialism.
0: I want to ask you, David, about other ways in which the book strives to place Otto's life and work in historical context. So you've already signaled the idea of thinking about his life in relationship to a French revolutionary tradition but mm-hmm. there are these other things that make appearances throughout the book. You know, there's a kind of story of modern technology, culture, and politics, major historical events like the World Wars. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how you're moving back and forth in the book between Artaud's life and the more big-ticket history of politics and, and culture in France and beyond.
1: Yeah, big-ticket items. Um, where do I start? Let me start with uh, I start with the First World War, for example. Sure. And, uh, you know, Otto's experiences, he was conscripted. He, uh, either contrived, um, sleepwalking, but somehow got out of his military service and was sent, you know, to his first incident in asylum because of that. Um, so there was that. Yet I think there was a certain amount of guilt that he felt for not having really experienced the first world war, not having experienced any action. Mm-hmm. And I think that that came through. And I think I mentioned that later on. He was in um, a film about Verdun, mm-hmm. which was, uh, and, uh, in that one, uh, you know he plays uh he he plays a guy who who is killed in the war, and um you know for him if, it, if i recall he tapped into was it uh i 'm sorry i'm going to really probably flood this um, but i i don 't know if it was andre i think it was andre masson the mm-hmm. uh, the artist who remembered laying on the battlefield in a you know in a prostrate position basically and um that auto in the same film in this film Verdon he adopts the same pose, having mm-hmm. heard that from Masson, maybe that was his way of trying to form an identification with what soldiers went through. But in any event, um, I, I always wondered as I was reading his, whatever kind of references he made to the war and whatever kind of connection there was later in life, whether he did feel a sense of guilt where so many had perished in the war. He didn't, and he had a relatively easy time and, you know, a certain sense of guilt over that. So there's that. Okay, mm-hmm. there's start. Second of all, there was his work with the Surrealists and mm-hmm. you know, the Surrealists was major artistic movement, but also political movement. And, You know, part of his break with the Surrealists came when the Surrealists um, affiliated with the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And it's not as though Artaud was a reactionary. And and there's been a book fairly recently by a a theater scholar um, about Artaud, which basically paints him as a proto-fascist, which which I do disagree with. But the thing is that his break with the Surrealists over communism wasn't so much because he, he was opposed to communism per se, but because he felt that the whole idea of a revolution of the proletariat that lay behind it was just going to lead to yet another form of class domination Mm -hmm. and a restriction on freedom, which he was opposed to, Mm -hmm. and he felt surrealism was opposed to as well. So there was that. Um, uh, Let's see, what else uh, could I talk about with with respect to him? Well, of course, there was the impact of the Second World War in his life. Mm -hmm. Um, Hey, he was really, really lucky in many respects that he was institutionalized during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Because um, on the one hand, yeah, he could have been could have been executed for having been in an asylum, but at the same time, as an artist whose views were really pretty much out of the box, he was vulnerable um, to that. This is a point that Sylvère uh, Lotringer had made actually in a in a brief essay about Artaud, uh about his vulnerability during the war, and you know maybe he was at the end of the day lucky to have been institutionalized. So there was that in terms of technology as an actor, you know, he is a silent film star and well, star, I guess, of sorts. Um, but, you know, he was in, uh, you know, Abel, he was in Gans' Napoleon, he played mm-hmm. Mara, and he was in Carl Théodore uh Passion of Joan of Arc. And the, the sound comes along, the talkies come along, and that's all the rage, of course, you know, at the end of the 1920s. And Otto rejects it because he feels that, that, film has more potential as a, as a visual medium and that it's destroyed by the introduction of sound.
0: Would it make sense, um, David to think of Otto as a kind of anarchist politically or no?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, 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 think it does. Um, and I think it's, I, I think it's, uh, worthwhile to think of the, the surrealists as anarchists, hmm. um, until they affiliated for a relatively brief time with the, with the communist party, um, that they were anarchists. Um, Look, I, I'm working on a new project now, which is a murder case in 1923. It was, uh, Germaine Bertrand, and she, uh, uh, she was an anarchist, her, uh, you know, hung out in anarchist circles in any event, mm-hmm. and she killed Marius Plateau, who was the secretary of the Action Française. She wanted to kill Leon Daudet, but he wasn't at the headquarters. Now, she became a co célèbre for the Surrealists, and in one of the editions of La Revolution Surrealiste, uh, they have a picture of all the surrealists you know on the border of the uh, the image on the cover including Arto and in the center there's a big photo of Germaine Berton so the thing is is that i think that for a while the surrealists saw themselves as anarchists who were above and beyond any political um, parties or factions in france and just embracing this whole idea of complete freedom and Arto never never lost that and that's why he um that's why ultimately he broke with, or he felt that the surrealist broke with him, I guess is the way he would probably say it.
0: So I feel sort of base asking this question, but what (laughs) about, what about his love life? What do we know about that part of his life? You know, you tell the story at one point in the book about, of one great uh, relationship. Uh, It's not the central thread by any means of, of of the Mm -hmm. biography. So what, what can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So his, um, his, his relationship was with uh, her name was uh, um oh uh Atanasio was her last name. I'm just I don't know why I'm trying to blank on her first name. I'm with the G, but anyway, Jenica uh, G- uh, uh, Atanasio. I don't know if I'm giving that a Yugoslavian pronunciation with the, the ch- <laughs> with the C, but it's either she was Romanian. It's either Jenica or Jenica uh, Atanasio, and she was an actress. And he, he had this kind of torrid relationship with her. A lot of it expressed through letters and the letters can be you know very tender at times where he makes these great protestations of his love for her and then they can just be absolutely diabolically mean-spirited in in the next minute now mm-hmm. a lot of the problems that they had had to do with his drug usage and she was having a hard time dealing with that so, you know, he would write letters sometimes saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking laudanum. I'm not taking opiates. But then he would write back saying, oh, I was just prescribed another dose of morphine and it's really helping me a lot. And, you know, then radio silence, I think, from her for a while based on his next letter to her. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of his love life, well, <laughs> this is this is the thing that I think has probably bedeviled anybody who's ever studied Arto is did he die a virgin? And I don't know if that's what you were asking.
0: Oh, not in particular. No,
1: No, but I guess, I
0: guess that, that, that's something. I didn't that even realize be, that inquired. was a thing. So.
1: Well, I mean, it might've been, I mean, we don't know. I mean, and you know, his, his relationship with women. Yeah. He had, he had what could have been platonic relationships with them. He had some where he, uh, well, he had one where he almost married or he, he wanted to marry this one woman. Um, and you know, he, he was so in was from Belgium or lesson Shram and, And, uh, you know, he went up to see her family and they were quite bourgeois and he totally like, you know, totally freaked out her family and they pretty much called off the whole thing. But, um, you know, I, I don't know if he ever consummated a relationship. I don't know how deeply he connected with women. It's, it's a very, very difficult question to answer, Mm -hmm. um, because there isn't a lot other than the letters with Jenica or Jenica and then the other ones that he, um, uh, and then the the kind of uh um circumstantial evidence that we have regarding other relationships that he had with about three or four other women
0: let's um I'm sort of proud to have gotten this far in the interview without talking about the drugs full on but let's mm. let's focus on that for a while i mean it's it certainly if you know anything uh you think theater drugs so what new information insight does this biography give us with respect to Otto's drug use, addiction, if we want to call it that. I know he didn't want to call it that. What, what can you tell mm-hmm.
1: us about that? Yeah, the one thing I did not want to do when I wrote this book was to really focus on the drug usage mm-hmm. because I know that that's the thing that attracts a lot of people to Otto, and I didn't want that to mm-hmm. be what defines him, as it too often does. Sure. But the fact of the matter is you can't avoid it. And right. in not avoiding it, I felt maybe I discussed it more than I really wanted to. Hmm. So... With respect to the drugs, I mean, he's originally prescribed it because of you know various ailments, whether it be physical ailments, whether it be mental ailments at the time. You know, this was, was fairly common practice. Um, and then he developed a dependency on it. And, uh, you know, was it an addiction? Um, yeah, probably was because he couldn't stay too far away from it, um, even though he wanted to get away from it. On the other hand, he also wrote essays in which he Uh, you know, complimented others who had talked about the mind-expanding properties of drugs. And he saw that as something that, uh, you know, gives it a bad rap, that it it has a bad rap, but that actually, as an artist, it can be something that can, uh, you know, expand one's consciousness and uh, allow one to, uh, to think more deeply and to see things that one doesn't ordinarily see. He did write about that. For the most part, he would say that he took drugs because he needed it, because he felt he was sick and he was in pain. Mm-hmm. And drugs relieved the pain that he was in. Uh, so there was that. When he went to Mexico and he was going to the Sierra, the Sierras to see the, uh, to uh, commune with the uh, Tarahomara um, in uh, just outside of Chihuahua. The Tarahumara are a native uh, tribe of Mexico that, mm-hmm. uh, again, that, that eschews any kind of contact with the West. They're known for being great distance runners, for example, but yet for a long time refused to participate on the uh, Mexican Olympic team because they didn't want any association with what they saw as a Western country. Mm-hmm. So Arturo, they they have the peyote ritual that they in, engage in, and, and I don't. I'm not saying that that was the reason that attracted Arturo to go to to stay with the Tarahumara, but while he was on his way to there, he's you know he wrote about how he threw away his last tabs of uh, of heroin um, because that's a Western drug, and he's now going to experience something that's non Western. So even in terms of of his substances of choice, um, he was trying to get away from. From Western uh, Western references.
0: Well, I guess in a related, I mean, it's there, it, all these things are interrelated. But just to sort of ask about the the way in which this biography is a kind of history of Arthur's mental health, but also of the management or uh, treatment of mental health and of psychology and even psychoanalysis. Um, I guess I want to just ask, you know, how how much that story of how these things change over the decades of his life matters to his biography in particular. Um, and then maybe as a kind of subset of this question, the role of psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. both for him, how important mm-hmm. those ideas were to him, but also to you as a writer thinking about auto as a psychological phenomenon, how much this book uh, approaches or deal has to deal with the idea of a kind of a psychohistory of of this figure.
1: Yeah, it's it's that's one of the more controversial aspects of auto's life. The mm-hmm. um, if we can if we can work backwards from the electric shocks. <clears throat> um you know, obviously for quite a long time electroshock therapy or electroconvulsive convulsive therapy as it's known, um, was out of favor. It's believe it or not, now making a big comeback. But um <clears throat> at that time it was it was reasonably controversial and you know when Otto was being given the fifty six treatments at uh Rodez um you know the doctor Ferdier, who uh administered them, really believed that this was something that was going to cure him mm. that this guy was really suffering, and he was when he was transferred um from paris uh from uh the uh, villeper uh asylum, which is just outside of paris um down to Odez, uh you know he was in a in a, almost a catatonic state mm. um And so he's given the treatments and he claimed that his, you know, his, his spine had broken at one point and, uh, or his spine had fractured. And, um, I I don't know, I think it was something about his teeth and he was always constantly in pain. And I believe that I'm sure that that's, that that was true. Um, but having said that though, and and when I started writing the book, I, 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 really thought that this poor guy suffered miserably and he suffered, you know, this, this, this horrible experimental treatment at the time. Um, but you know, there's no mistaking that his writing was a lot more lucid. Um, it was a lot more focused when he got out of Rodez
0: hmm. than
1: when he entered, he pretty much stopped writing for years when he'd been in asylums and then he gets out of Rodez and some of his best writings are produced that time, including, uh, um, the English titles for an end to the judgment of God, which I think is a, is a brilliant essay, very mm-hmm. prescient and his, uh. His uh, essay about Van Gogh and uh, Van Gogh, suicided by the society, where he draws parallels between himself and 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 Van Gogh. So, I, I, I'm not at the point where I'm going to say that he was actually helped by electric shock treatment. I'm not certainly going to be an advocate for that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I really can't, I, I really can't condemn it in terms of uh, as something that was really disastrous for him. In terms of his other treatments, you know, his first treatment, his first sustained treatment, was under the care of a doctor Toulouse in Paris, and Doctor Toulouse was a guy who really felt that really substantial artists all suffer from some sort of a of a malady um, mm. that causes them to see the world differently, and he he adopted Otto as one of these people uh, that he saw throughout, especially French history, as uh, French cultural history, as as one who who suffered, but through that individual suffering could produce really profound and sublime works of art.
0: I guess I want to ask you, David, about the arc of his work over the course of this life, partly because we can't talk about all of the work, but, you know, yeah. in, across the biography, if you had to do it in sort of broad strokes, what are some of the big things you'd say about uh, how his work changes as he matures? Or I
1: don't know if, they, if it matures or if it just changes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if it really evolves. In the 1920s, when he's with the Surrealists, his writings are a bit more um, social and political. Mm-hmm. By the 1930s, he's really focusing on theater. He's focusing on theater as a, and a film and theater, actually. Film and theater as um, agents for change, mm-hmm. that you can really transform society. And that's where I see him as the revolutionary, as the guy who's really trying to transform what he sees as bourgeois hegemony and knows that he's not going to be able to launch a revolution in the conventional sense of the word. But feels he can. He really feels he can do it through theater. He feels he can do it, that it can be done through film. You know, he, he writes about the Marx Brothers, for example, who he loved. And Marx Brothers movies, yeah, believe it or not, I he went to see that it. really surprising? He, no, it's, it's not. But the thing is that he, what he saw in it all was the, the kind of zaniness of it <laughs> and the craziness and the way in which they, they totally upend uh, the way the world is experienced. Mm-hmm. And he felt that that was the future of, if done properly, film and theater. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't feel it was actually done right. But he, so he focused a lot on that. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, and I guess there is sort of an, an evolution or some sort of an arc, I guess, actually, to his work because later on, when he gets out of uh, Rodez, his writings do take on a more political tone. Um, this one, "For an End to the Judgment of God," for example, very, very prescient in terms of how it how it you know anticipates the the Cold War, and you know he's writing this in 1946 and. Nuclear weaponry and how that could lead to the annihilation of civilization and especially competition between the Russians and the Americans uh, he also writes about genetically modified foods you know before that was was really an issue you know you know talking about that and how in America they're growing things that you know can't be grown and in sizes that are you know unknown and so on and so forth so you know these are the major things that he writes about. Um, You know, in addition, of course, to the things that I've already talked about his, uh, you know, his antipathy towards the West and his privileging of the East, Mm -hmm. of Eastern value and Eastern culture.
0: We've already sort of talked about a number of ways in which you tried to avoid. And I think you do avoid getting sucked into mythologizing him in a negative way and caricaturing him with respect to drug use or mental illness or some of these other things. So what about the scandals? I mean, I feel like, when we talk about the relationship between performance and life in the case of someone like Aftu, the, the centrality of provocation and the drama of his actual life, and then some of the more scandalous aspects of his work and his performances, you inevitably have to deal with those things, but how do you do that without getting, getting sucked into, to the caricatures?
1: Yeah, it's a hard thing to do actually. Um, in his own life, it's a question of how much influence he actually really had, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how much notoriety he had. And I really wasn't able to find that there was an awful lot to it, that he was on anybody's radar necessarily. I mean, artists knew about him. Mm-hmm. He tried to scandalize theater as much as he could with his performances. Um, you know, whether it, there was something I mentioned in the book about um, a, a play that was done um, at one of the theaters that he was, was working with that that he was actually a director of the uh, theater. And, um, and he uh, talks about uh, Paul Claudel the I think calls him an asshole or something along that line that this was written by Paul Claudel, who was a, you know, Catholic, uh, you know, very Catholic. And uh, I think told uh, made some reference to that as a way to scandalize the audience. And mm-hmm. then he had another play, one of Swinberg's plays that he did. And he. Got a big burstment from the uh, Swedish embassy, and then he insulted the Swedes uh, as well, uh, <laughs> not by saying anything negative about uh, Strindberg, but uh, basically saying how Strindberg found all these people who were here useless, uh, who were in the audience, would have found them to be useless. So he did things like that, but but outside of that, he really didn't do that much to scandalize. Even his um, his one movie that he wrote, the uh, <clears throat> the Clergyman and the Seashell which is one that's considered to be, by many, the first real surrealist film. It's quite a short movie. Mm-hmm. Even that didn't really get much play um, and wasn't really that well-known at the time, other than the fact that in England it was banned. But that was it. But in, in France, it, it didn't get an awful lot of, uh, a lot, a lot of notoriety at the time. It, a lot of what happened with Auteau in the popular imagination happened subsequent to his death.
0: Mm-hmm. It's true that I think of that film as sort of you know central. I certainly had to watch it several times in college and had to, I should say it like that, (laughs) got to watch it several times in college.
1: Well, uh, I mean, even with that, though, he, again, uh, you know, it wasn't for want of trying that he was, you know, endeavoring to scandalize audiences and, uh, you know, give himself a little bit of publicity. Uh, You know, when that was screened, there was a disturbance in the theater because he claimed that the director, Germaine Dulac, Mm -hmm. uh, Dulac was, uh, uh, you know, totally... um, uh, uh, misrepresented what he had, what he the screenplay that he had written, and mm-hmm. you know had her own vision and turned something that he had written into into a, a very straight narrative. Now, you said you've seen it, and you can you know <laughs> that there's no straight narrative to that movie. And the question is, is that you know, I mean, you know, did he really believe that, or was he trying to use this as an opportunity to create, uh, you know, to start a fight in the theater? <clears throat>
0: a happening, and
1: then yeah, exactly, a happening, and then basically uh, he would get the press for it. And he did get something for that,
0: right? So let's talk about the notion that maybe people who know Arto's ideas and particularly his his work in theater probably know best, which is this notion of cruelty, right? Mm-hmm. What did Arto mean by cruelty, and how are you uh, working with the manifestos that he wrote on the subject of the theater of cruelty and the the way that that idea runs throughout the project, the Arto project?
1: Okay, one thing, first of all, about mention manifesto, <clears throat> and I find it extremely ironic that Artaud used a manifesto because this was a guy who felt that the words are, uh, are a contrivance hmm. and that they break pure thought, which is what he was endeavoring to, to locate in himself, you know, a, a pure, unmediated thought. And words are something that are part of a, a cultural and social construct. Yet he uses words, <clears throat> uses the device of a manifesto. To express probably his most profound theories. Mm-hmm. You know, this one on the theater of cruelty. So there's that, which is, which is kind of ironic in a way. But then again, you know, what choice do you have, I guess? Um, but this was a guy, again, a lot of his writing had to do with his inability to articulate the purity of what's in his head using the words that have been given him. So there's that. Um, okay. But regarding the theater of cruelty, this is one of the, one of the ideas that's often uh, very, uh, misrepresented. Um, mm-hmm. By people it's it's not about portraying cruelty on on the stage it's not about uh, a bloodlust or violence on on that. that that that's not what he meant by cruelty what he meant by cruelty is basically destabilizing people's perceptions their presuppositions mm-hmm. and that's to him what what the theater of cruelty was really all about
0: so how does cruelty take shape or form in in the work what does it what does it look like as a performance to experience? And yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Well, for example, there was his, um, there was his, his, uh, adaptation of Le Sensi, which was, uh, you know, it's, it's an old story, but it's he was taking basically uh, Percy Shelley's adaptation of it. And <clears throat> it was the themes that it dealt with incest amongst other things, for example, um, that he, was calculating would be very disturbing to the audience. It was disturbing only to the extent that it was apparently a really, really bad performance. It was a really, (laughs) really bad play that he had written and it got terrible reviews. Hmm. Um, But at the time it was scandalous. And I think that that was what he was endeavoring to do is to create scandal, to have an audience. And and this is what he meant by cruelty is that to wake people out of their complacency and, and lethargy by dealing with themes and subjects, not, not cruelty, as I said, in terms of, of, of violence, but some sort of a visceral reaction that people would have and that when they would leave the, the space of the theater, they would be totally transformed from how they had been before.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's what he means is cruelty, that people go through life seeking comfort, seeking pleasure, seeking reaffirmation, and that when they see one of his plays, when they see a play that... That when they see a piece that, that follows this theater of cruelty, they'll come out completely transformed and different and questioning and challenging that which they believed and uh, that which they found so, so comforting in the past.
0: And as I understand it, David, the, the notion of cruelty in theater circled back in his work to the influence and his impressions of non-Western ritual and performance mm-hmm. uh, in, in some of the, the context that he you know admired.
1: Yeah, he did. Um, you're referring specifically, I think, to the, the Balinese Theater that That's he experienced right. yeah, in, ni- yeah. in 1931. Yeah. And again, it, it, it wasn't violence in that. It was these, these very, very long dance performances. And what, he's, what he felt was actually, and this was part of what he meant by, by cruelty, was returning back to the primal. Hmm. Um, basically, um, in some respects, uh, it was a rejection of civilization as we know it. In, in terms of Western civilization, in terms of things that are more refined, that are overproduced. <clears throat> and that's what he was, uh, that's what he was interpreting to do. That's what he saw, at least from his own perspective in the Balinese theater. Here's the ironic thing is he felt what the Balinese were doing was some sort of a timeless dance hmm. where the the uh, <clears throat> the dancers appeared to be, I think he called them living high, uh, hieroglyphics. So what he felt he saw was something that had been performed, you know, for centuries and centuries from, from and, and passed down from each generation completely um, unaltered. That's not what he was actually seeing. Hmm. What he saw at that colonial exposition was actually a dance that was a relatively, uh, relatively recent vintage. I don't mean relatively. I mean, it was only a dance that was like only 10, 20 years old, but for him in his eyes, it was so different from the West from anything that he saw in the West that he felt it had to have been something that was unmediated from what it did, what had originally been produced centuries before
0: when you uh, are talking about sort of the end of arto's life and his death you raise this issue around the specifics <coughs> of his of his death and his burial of the the tension between his friends and family at the end of his life but then throughout uh, throughout his life could you say a little bit more about that
1: yeah one thing i haven't discussed was religion and <sighs> Arto had a I will not say evolving, but he had a very, you know, again, a very uh, up and down ebb and flow relationship with religion. You know, as a kid, he became very religious at one point, talked about becoming a priest. Mm-hmm. Then he rejected all that in the 1920s. And then he comes back from Mexico <clears throat> and he goes to Ireland and he suddenly becomes extremely Catholic. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is of course the worst time of his life mentally. This is when he's really going through a big, big time breakdown is he's, tramping through ireland and you know causing all sorts of problems when he's there and um he was like that in the various asylums that he was in until he went to Rodez. then when he goes to Rodez, he goes through the electric shock treatments and he writes some things that are you know were very condemning of condemnatory of religion um christianity in particular and, and what he's saying is is that he you know he has no use for religion and all that so his mother though was a very strong catholic And he remained very close to his mom. Now, when he died, the circle of people that were around him, when he was released from Rodez, the circle of people in Paris, they understood that he was someone who was very conflicted about religion. Well, no longer conflicted, I should say. He was somebody who really had rejected whatever kind of affirmations of religion he had expressed in the past. His family, on the other hand, wanted to have a religious burial. And ultimately, his friends won out on this one. And it, it was not, but it created real tension between his family and uh, the circle of artists who were around him at the end.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then this would lead to what I think is is kind of a funny story that Serge related to me about his ultimate burial down in, in Marseille. So he was, when he was released from Rodez, he goes back to Paris, and just outside of Paris, he's at the. Uh, um, I guess it's kind of an asylum that used to exist at Yves sur seine you know, mm-hmm. just outside of Paris. And he was there and treated pretty well when he was there. They let him, you know, indulge in drugs because, you know, they knew that that's what he craved and he wasn't going to probably live a long time. And, you know, so they were indulgent of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, he dies there dies of an overdose. Um, he did have, he had been uh, diagnosed with stomach cancer <clears throat> and he, uh, he was prescribed narcotics. Was described prescribed opiates, and uh, <clears throat> he was pretty careful to take the the prescribed dosage. But he was found one morning by the uh, uh, the a um, gardener of the asylum, and he was you know at the foot of his bed, basically, and the vial was empty. I don't know if he did this intentionally, if he was ready to check out, or whether you know it was just an accidental overdose. But I mean, he was he was kind of heading in that direction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so he dies, he's buried, <clears throat> and all that, and he's buried at ifris senator And then his family, <clears throat> years later, decided that they wanted to move him to Nice, or to Marseille, excuse me, where he was, where he's from, and where the family plot was. And I, I talk about this in the book, but, uh, what, what it was at that time was, I think it was his, his, um, his mother was there, no, his sister was there, excuse me, and Serge, uh, his nephew, and Serge's sister, uh, was also there. And so Otto was dug up, and all they found were, bones, and because Serge's car was too small, uh, they had to put the bones in a little box, basically, which was basically a, a casket for children. They drove down to Marseille, and the cemetery where he used to be buried was closed for the night, so they stayed in a really dodgy part of Marseille. I don't know why, but they stayed in some dodgy part, and they were super scared that somebody was going to steal the car with the precious box of bones in it. Uh-huh. <sighs> Fortunately, that didn't happen. But So what the family did it was the family kept vigil the entire night, watching the car and making sure that nobody didn't steal the car and then get Otto's bones. But anyway, they had a ceremony for him. It was a religious ceremony for Otto. I don't know how he would react to it. Again, I don't want to cast judgments on the family's interpretation of his life versus those of his friends. Mm-hmm. I was just writing exactly what happened you know, in the book.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I really admire how you... Work with this, you know, pretty crazy story without turning the book into a, you know, a, a true, well, not a true crime, but a, but a um, like the sensational uh, tale because it has all of these aspects in it, you know, from the two grandmothers uh, who are related oh, yeah. right to the end of this these stories about you know e- just even how his body is handled. So let's let's talk about the sort of in the. Epilogue to the book, you talk about art's relationship to to posterity and all of the different types of movements in you know cultural theory art theater music uh from performance to punk uh, the influences that art's life and work uh, have had on on some of these other movements. so what are some of the things that really stand out for you in terms of the legacy that Art leaves for the worlds of art and culture?
1: I think that his his greatest legacies are, to is, well, I, I think would be to theater. Mm-hmm. Um, the most obvious one would be people like Peter Brook, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, I write about who, you know, directly references Alto. Um, there were other people as well in theater who, um, you know, you know who uh, used his work. There was uh, uh, Josie Kotowski, for example, amongst others. There was the Living Theater in Chicago. Uh, there was, um, who was it? Uh, um, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, Reza Abdo, late mm-hmm. Reza Abdo. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen any of his plays, but there are mm-hmm. things that to many audiences are kind of incomprehensible. And I, I once saw a Reza Abdo play, he passed away from AIDS several years ago, but, um, I saw one of his plays, um, in Los Angeles and I've never seen more people walk out of a performance. Wow. That is before I ever worked on Alto and then, of course when i started working on auto i saw some you know the, i i referenced back to that play that i'd sure. seen of, of abdo and um then of course i read that you know there is this connection between uh between abdo and uh and auto <clears throat> so in in terms of theater again destabilizing elements uh that's what you see in uh you know the marasa the, that uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, uh you. that peter brook produced um or directed i should say uh in terms of other people well there were some that i Reference, for example, in um, uh, who was it? The uh, uh, Japanese dance uh, form known as buto. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: I wrote about that now, and I owe a debt actually to the artist Richard Hawkins, who's one of my neighbors in in Silver Lake District of Los Angeles. Who's Richard is working on an Arto piece at the moment. He's doing something on Arto's experiences in Mexico, and uh, I think he was doing some research, and he found out before my book came out that I was writing this book, and then. Um, he said to me, if you're ever in Los Angeles, let's get together. And I told him I live in Los Angeles. It turns out we live <laughs> about a mile apart. So I, 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 owe him that. But punk was something that's pretty important to me. Um, because, uh, it was something that I was into and, and still am into. You know, the, the, the anarchic spirit of punk. Um, I think is, is something that's very prevalent in our toe, for example. And then, of course, there are the people like Richard Hell. Richard held the Voidoids. and of course, he was in the band television at least in its mm-hmm. initial incarnation, and um Patty Smith, who have directly written about Otto and you know how they were taken by him and you know even if you can't see these kind of direct parallels, um the fact that they reference him is is pretty important, but again, I mean, I think we see a lot of these um we we try to look too closely and when we don't see the connection, then we have to make some inferential leaps and I don't think that the inferential leaps are too big between Otto's spirit of punk and his, his uh, rejection of bourgeois values and really the same ethos that we see in punk.
0: So David, it's the book has been out. I don't know how long for five or six months. Is that, is that when it came
1: yeah, out? Yeah. Something like that. I think
0: it came out in April. Has, well, I have a couple of questions about that. So mm-hmm. what's, uh, what does Serge think of what you've had to say about Otto if he's read it? And yeah, what, what type of response are you getting to, you know, from either from other folks who've worked on Otto or, um, will it, will it come out in translation? You think what's the, what's the afterlife of the book been since its publication?
1: Yeah. So Serge, um, <clears throat> well, Serge knows very little English for mm-hmm. a start. So mm-hmm. there's that. So that, that's, that's somewhat problematic for him, but he said that he had a friend translate part of it. And Serge, Serge now lives most of the year in, in Paris. Right. Um, but <clears throat> the last time I saw him was about, I think it was right after the book came out and I gave him a copy of it and inscribed it for him. And, um, you know, and then he he wrote to me later. Or his, his wife Simone did, and said that they had a friend who read some of it, and they thought, "Oh, this was this was was, was really really good." Now he might have just been saying that. I don't know. <laughs> I you know, I I really don't know because I, I don't know, think that there's that much that a friend was able to translate for him. So that that's a, that's uh, unfortunate that Serge is not going to be able to really read the whole book, and and I guess it's unfortunate. Maybe it is fortunate. I I don't know how he'll react. How he would react to the whole thing? But again. I tried not to be judgmental and sure. of Artaud, and I hope he would appreciate that. Yeah. Um, with regard to the book's afterlife, uh, so far, um, in terms of reviews, I haven't seen any reviews thus far. Um, so I, I, I don't know what the reception has been in, 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 that, in that regard.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, with respect to other Artaud scholars, <clears throat> I haven't heard from any of them. Hmm. So again, I don't know if it's too new, the book or right. too inconsequential or, um, <laughs> or what it is really.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, there's lots of time. It just came.
1: Out. There is time. Yeah. yeah. And uh, in terms of a translation, I, I don't even know if that's going to happen because, um, you know, there's been so much written about him in France. Um, I think that I add something new to the Arto story, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of my contextualization, but there've been some really good, um, good biographies of him. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm uh you know that i could mention um that are not in translation um that they could have been mm-hmm. but in terms of it, it, it for an english language work for an anglophone audience um there hasn't been a lot written about arto um recently okay. there've been a few things that have come out in the last uh, 5 years mm-hmm. uh but that's been about it you know in terms of uh, in terms of books
0: so David, you you raised this a bit earlier this new work that you're doing and i just wanted mm-hmm. to come back to that and and just wanted to ask if you wanted to say any more. If you could tell us any more about the project that you're doing on this murder. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, here's here's the thing. In writing the Arto book, one thing I really wanted to do was have fun with the book, mm-hmm. um, with my subject. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to write something that was enjoyable. I wanted to write something that was readable. Yeah. Um, that was going to appeal to various audiences, not just a scholarly audience, for example. Mm-hmm. Not. Um, but 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 something that would have. A larger appeal. I I think as scholars, we we do our research a disservice when we only write for our peers. right? And so that's what I was hoping to avoid with the Artaud book. With respect to this new work that I'm doing on Germaine Berton, this murder case, um, first of all, I'm really surprised that nobody's done any work on it because it's actually quite a fascinating story. This young Mm -hmm. woman who, who, you know, is in Paris and is in these, uh, these various circles and you know, she she kills this guy in Marius Plato because uh, she wants to avenge a, f- a few things. First of all, um, she wants to avenge the uh, you know the French militarism in the Ruhr after World War One, for example. Um, that's that's one thing, for example. Uh, the second thing was the uh, the murder of Jean Jaurès uh, on the eve of the uh, First World War. Her father had always said that you know this was terrible, that this would have kept France out of the war, and so on and so forth. And so, politically, she had been um, you know really influenced by her dad. So she, she kills this guy. There's a trial. She, she was caught, you know, literally, you know, with the smoking gun Mm -hmm. and, um, she's found not guilty. And it was kind of a tit for tat for the guy who killed Jules, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, where he, um, uh, served very little time in prison, if I'm not mistaken, if he served any time. And, uh, she was, uh, she also was, you know, she was found not guilty and, you know, she resumed her political activities for a bit and then she ultimately, um, uh, you know, kind of went underground for a bit and then committed suicide during the second world war. So again, as a murder case, I want to have a little bit of fun with that. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, I've, I'm dealing with, you know, thinking of different strategies for how to work on that case. I've been working, um, on the research at the, uh, archive de la prefecture de la police. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I've been doing that and going through the police reports and so on and so forth, their investigation and kind of approaching it from that end. Um, kind of thought about giving it kind of a Rashomon type, uh, treatment where mm-hmm. I'm looking at it from different perspectives, the case. So, uh, I'm doing that. I'm also working on another project, um, on the construction of, uh, the French teenager in the 1950s and early 1960s, hmm. uh, through magazines and newspapers and so on and so forth.
0: Well, that all sounds really, uh, really exciting. And, and I hope, uh, you'll come back and Talk to me about about that murder case when it's out in, in new book form. And and yeah, I just wanted to note that I think this book was a lot of fun to read. So success on that. front. Um, well, thank you. So, David, thanks so much for joining me and for writing the book.
1: Thank you very much.